Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Janine Garofalo. Now, I don't say that to be a douche, pardon my French. That really is French. I feel comfortable saying that. But I... That, and you'll also hear every single member of my old comedy group, The State. It's the 300th episode of Risk, so we're doing something quite different for this episode. If you're new to the podcast, be sure and go back and check out some of our best of Risk episodes for true stories so uncensored, so surprising, and so intensely real they couldn't be played on the radio. But before we start, I want to announce that we're bringing Risk to Salt Lake City on September 17th. The theme is outrageous. And we're coming to Nashville on September 22nd. The theme is humiliating. And we're still taking pitches for both those shows. So if you have a story you think you might like to share or you know someone who might, go to the submissions page at risk-show.com. There's even a video there where I tell you how to formulate a great pitch for us. Now here's the show. kids this is risk the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share i'm kevin allison this is craig wedron with the state's theme song behind me now because this is not your usual episode of risk folks normally an episode of the risk podcast will feature maybe a hilarious story a terrifying story, maybe a tear-jerking story that will touch on a big universal theme like madness or ecstasy. But this week, we have a much more specific theme. This week, we'll be hearing stories about my sketch comedy group from back in the day, by which I mean The State. If you never saw our series, The State on MTV in the mid-90s, well, these two certainly had feelings about it. These guys should be on that show, The State. Yeah. <laughs> because I fuck. <laughs> and you can see for yourself what The State's comedy was all about because our MTV series is now on Hulu, iTunes, Amazon Prime, and it just started airing again on MTV Classic. But the main reason for all this state nostalgia recently is that a writer named Corey Stoltz just published our biography. It's an oral history. It means interviews with all of us. It's called The Union of the State, and it's racking up glowing reviews on Amazon right now. A lot of people are curious about the origins of this group of people who later worked on stuff like Reno 911, Night at the Museum, Wet Hot American Summer, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, this podcast, and much, much more. To start off, why don't I share my own story of how I came to meet everyone else in the group? I told this one 
at the Risk Live show at NYC Podfest just a couple of months back. might not have ever even become a member of the state if it weren't for my penis. <laughs> I was 18 years old on the morning of my first day at the Tisch School of the Arts at NYU, and I'll tell you something, my knees were shaking. I was so nervous, because I was just this boy from Ohio. You know, I remember running into the bathroom at 721 Broadway and kind of locking myself in a stall and giving myself a pep talk that first morning, saying, Kevin, you're not just a boring, bland, red-headed, polite dude from Ohio. You were hilarious in St. Xavier High School's production of Godspell. <laughs> and I was, motherfuckers. <laughs> I was. But everyone else at NYU just instantly seemed so cocky and so trust-fundy, you know? <laughs> so I was nervous. Now, the next thing I know, after getting out of that bathroom stall, I'm with a bunch of other freshman film students, and I heard the very first sentence of my entire college education when Spike Lee came walking up on stage and he said to all of us, guys, your parents have wasted so much money. <laughs> there was a lot of blinking going on in the room at that point. Then he went on to say, look, you think this institution is going to give you a career like mine? No. Look around you at the faces in the seats around you. That is where you're going to find success. Make friends with talented people here and work with them in the future. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh God, no. That's so daunting, you know, it's the old, it's who you know, it's the, it's who you know proverb. And listen, it's always disappointing, you know, when you find a particular little specific part of adult society, we're like, oh, this is just like a seventh grade popularity contest. But then we wise up, right? We grow wisdom and we learn that every part of American society is like a seventh grade popularity contest. So I take a moment to kind of look around and I'm like, gosh, who here looks like a talented filmmaker? But then I saw the cutest boy. I'm looking at this boy in the audience and I'm like, oh my God, he's got this curly brown hair and these big brown eyes, this cute button nose. And for a boy from Ohio, this part was especially exciting. He looked like he was something other than white. <laughs> I later learned he was from Florida and that was actually what we call a suntan. 
<laughs> but when it was time for us to, you know, take a break, you know, stretch our legs and everything, I also noticed the most important part of all. He had a cute butt. Then I take a look, and he's got a little name tag on, and it says his name is Joe Latrulio. I'm like, oh my gosh. Now, here's the deal. This is, we're talking about 1988 right now, my friends. And Joe had come directly from Fort Lauderdale, and he had based his wardrobe very, very clearly, like, Everything he was wearing, he had seen worn on Miami Vice. <laughs> there were the white parachute pants, the like fuchsia linen sport jackets, the sockless loafers. You know, if he was walking around today, you'd be like, oh my God, I didn't know Cirque du Soleil is in town. But I thought everything about him was just as hot as could be. Spike Lee said, look for the talent. I started by looking for the butt. <laughs> now, the next morning was drop-add day at NYU, meaning you could drop one class and add another. So I'm walking down the hallway of the Tisch School of the Arts, and I'm like, oh, my God, there's that cute boy, Joe. And he slips into a counselor's office, and I'm like, wait a minute. Is he dropping and adding? <laughs> if I eavesdrop right now, I'll have what he's having. <laughs> so I put my ear right up to the door and I can clearly hear Joe say, I want to take that eight millimeter movie class because back then, film schools used film. <laughs> And so as soon as he wanders back down the hall out of that room, I jump in there and I say to the counselor, me too. <laughs> so first day of eight millimeter movie class, Joe says, I would like to make a movie about my tumultuous relationship with my girlfriend back in Florida. So I'm like, oh gosh. <laughs> There go all my hopes. I'm barking up the wrong tree here. And really, like, it was strange that this was the first work he brought to school. I mean, these little eight millimeter movies were kind of like, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? And you know, he, him and his girlfriend were just about old enough to vote. Meanwhile, my movies in eight millimeter film class took on such hefty topics like Ever notice how pickles are kind of shaped like poop? <laughs> but I was very tickled because Joe seemed to get a kick out of them. Now, one day, a few months into class, Joe announces to the whole room, Hey, guys, I'm in a new comedy group, and we're doing a show tonight. And I thought, oh, okay, great. I mean, I can't get anything going on with Joe, I'm sure, but I can sit in the theater and stare at him for like an hour, an hour and a half, and not get caught. So I decided to go. Now, back then, when the state was a new group, it was just called the new group. Todd Hollebeck was this super sweet little guy from Wisconsin, right? He loved Jimmy Buffett. <laughs> and he loved cannabis. It, 
if Todd was a book, it would just be the Tao of Pooh. <laughs> but one day, uh, Todd decided, you know what, I'm tired of what's going on with this old sketch comedy group here at NYU. So he started putting up flyers around school that said, hey, who wants to start a new group? And what happened next was truly weird, right? What happened next was everyone from the state agrees totally like synchronicity, or as Todd might have said, far out. <laughs> because that weekend, Todd auditioned 78 people and then chose around about 11, and that group of people just happened to instantly become the very best of friends and develop this chemistry, this creative chemistry, that you might as well just call magic. It was bizarre to have been there that first night for that first show in that audience. I had never seen a piece of theater like it before. Because it's just this little room. It's just like a room that sees about 50 people in the Tisch School of the Arts, a little black box theater. But the feeling in that room was huge. Everyone on stage and off was buzzing like they were on the very best kinds of mushrooms. And what was weird about it was that it felt like we were laughing in a deja vu kind of way out there in the audience. It felt like we were like, this is our very favorite thing that we've never seen before. It felt like this is a classic that is just 18-year-olds performing together for the very first time. So it was very unique. And I left the theater. You know, you've probably had one of those experiences in the theater where you're like, God damn, why can't I be a part of that? So I left the theater, walked out with this friend of mine, this other film student named Chris. We're walking through Washington Square Park, and I'm shook up. I say, God damn. I feel like I just discovered pizza. <laughs> I said, whatever it takes, I'm going to get in that group. And he looked at me and he said, you? <laughs> now, I knew where he was coming from. Because, in fact, I was not yet out of the closet about being funny yet at school. <laughs> I was really kind of Jekyll and Heidi that way. Like, my default, like, social anxiety mode is to be that bland, boring, agreeable Catholic boy from Ohio. So I'm like, God damn, no, no, I, I, I can't. I felt like saying to Chris, no, you don't understand. I was really hilarious in St. Xavier High School's production of Godspell. <laughs> Instead... I started scheming. I thought, what if I can get a glimpse at one of Joe's folders someday and kind of peek in at his schedule for next semester and drop everything I'm doing and add everything he's doing so I'll be in all of his classes. And then eventually, maybe I can start hanging out after classes with some of his comedy group friends and then one night, I'll let them see my hilarious Mr. Hyde. <laughs> now, you might be thinking, 
No, you're not telling us you stalked Joe Latrulia. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I am. But in my defense, it was a very highfalutin sort of stalking because it ultimately amounted in a Bachelor of Fine Arts. <laughs> but the next semester, I was in every goddamn class <laughs> that Joe was in. And on the first day of the class, we would run into each other and for everyone, we'd be like, you're in this one too? And then finally, one day, the blessed day came where we were on a film crew together and he said to me, hey, Kevin, a bunch of friends of mine from my comedy group are hanging out at this dive bar tonight. You want to come? And I was like, oh my God, Eureka, this is the night. It was a very wintry night, right? And the place was called The Dugout. It was this place in the East Village. And it turned out that for the new group, it was home away from the dorms, right? Because beers were just a dollar a pint. I mean, it was the 90s, my friends. Beers were a dollar a pint, and for some reason, no one ever stopped Ben Garant from passing a bottle of Jägermeister under the tables. That night, I do remember that Tom Lennon leaned in next to me and he said, did you know that Ben is usually on acid? Well, a couple decades later, just a couple years ago, Ben came on Risk in Los Angeles and shared the story that, yes, for freshman and sophomore year, he was usually on acid. <laughs> so there was this cold slush on the ground that was on everyone's boots that night, but the bar was kind of warm from the crowdedness, you know? And the pogues were playing... Uh, fairy tale of New York, and I remember we were drinking deep, and it just kind of felt like we were in a storm at sea in a ship. And at one point, I got up to use the bathroom. I'm good and drunk now. And Ken Marino says to me, hey, fireball, because of my red hair. He said, there's pee water all over the floor, so just take care of yourself in there, all right? And he was right. When I walk in this bathroom, it's all sloshy and slushy and kind of yellow down there. I'm like, all right. Uh, and as I'm staring down at this puddle, I suddenly have an inspired moment. I have an idea. I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. You know what would really blow these guys' minds? What if I exited this bathroom a moment from now completely nude. <laughs> what could go wrong? So I started in. I started taking off all my clothes, except the Doc Martens were a difficult part because I had to get up on the toilet in order to take them off and put them back on because it's all sloshy and sloshy and pee downstairs. And then suddenly, a song occurred to me. More specifically, a wailing song. <laughs> Not a song that existed, just a kind of a sea shanty from, you know, the kind of song that the fellas used to sing when they were out pursuing the Moby Dicks of this world. So indeed, I come out, I 
burst open this door. I've got a pint of beer in my hand, and there's nothing on except for my Doc Martens. And I raise the pint, and I start singing full volume to a full bar of grungy East Villagers. And the song went like this. Oh, standing in an inch of urine well becomes the sailing man. Do me like a cauliflower with your molars in my hand. It was total nonsense. (laughs) And I circled that entire bar just improvising this Dr. Seussian balderdash. And in every eye that I passed was just this look of wonder. I circled all the way around until I was back at the door. I ended it with some line about the importance of mayonnaise. (laughs) And when I was done with my song, my aria there, all of the dugout just broke into applause. I went in, I put my clothes back on, and I came back out. And when I came back to the new group, Carrie grabbed me by the shoulders and she said, oh my God, you are crazy. You should hang out with us more often. So now I think to myself, if I am ever invited to do the orientation for NYU at the Tisch School of the Arts, I'm going to add to Spike Lee's advice because I think it was good but there's a little more needed and that is look at the faces of the people in the seats around you but then also look at their butts The first time that Kevin Allison ever performed with the state, he'd been doing our sound. Uh, This is right after college, towards the end of college. He was doing sound for our shows. And we did a sketch called Bob, Sparky, and Verbal, which was sort of a waiting for Godot kind of nonsense piece of two characters waiting for a character named Verbal. And at the end of the sketch, Verbal was Kevin, And he just danced onto the stage, totally naked, singing a song that started, Standing in an inch of urine well becomes a sailing man. Oh, and then it it kept going from there until he made it all the way across the stage and danced off. And then when he was gone, me and Ken Marino, who were Bob and Sparky, looked at each other and I picked up the phone and said, Hello, Dominoes. That was the first ever... Kevin Allison's scene with us. I think that that entire song he improvised once coming out of the men's room of a bar and he sang that song to us and it was sort of love at first sight. That was Ben Grant, another member of the state there. You know, my parents were in New York City that week that I was in my very first show with the state. And I had been telling them about how much I loved this group for a couple of years already. 
But that weekend, I said, oh, this is not our best work. I really would prefer you guys not see this show because it's just not up to snuff. (laughs) But it was really because I didn't want them to see me almost nude running across the stage like that. You know, for my 46th birthday in February, Beowulf Jones, who produces Risk, out in LA, the live show that we do at the uh, Bootleg Theater. He recorded some people sharing their recollections about me over the years, so that's where we get that clip from Ben. Now, Corey Stolz's book, The Union of the State, it's chock full of these kinds of memories. This Risk episode is just a random handful of ones that we could find audio for. For example, here's Tom Lennon when he was being interviewed by Corey for the book. Tom is currently playing Felix Unger on The Odd Couple on CBS, and here he is recollecting his very first rehearsal with the state when we were at NYU. It happened to be the day that he had just quit smoking cigarettes. Two things happened my first state meeting, my first newspaper meeting which is, I was bending over and Carrie Kenny walked up behind me as a joke and pushed really hard right at my butthole. Uh, just was like, hey, Broderick, or you know, something that she said, and she walked and shoved her finger, but she did it so hard that her finger actually entered my butthole. Uh, which was kind of horrifying. <laughs> it was one of those weird gags where you're like walking up behind, she certainly, I don't think she was trying to stick her finger into my butt, but she did. And then about 10 minutes later, Ben was standing on a two-by-four that was balancing over a, uh, like a big heavy paint can. And I walked up and I said, hey, teeterboard. And I jumped on it the other side. And he ended up like flying into a wall and uh, kind of got hurt a little bit. Yeah. So it was a real strange meeting. And then I went downstairs and bought cigarettes and started smoking again. And I'd be, I would then be a chain smoker basically for another 15 years. <laughs> I also spoke with David Wayne recently. Now, David, one of the latest things he's done was he directed the prequel of Wet Hot American Summer on Netflix. He's also directed Children's Hospital on Adult Swim. Anyway, we talked about this prank that he used to pull a lot back in our college days that eventually inspired a recurring character on our MTV series played by Ken Marino, the character of Louie. The guy who walks in the room and does pretty much nothing but repeat this catchphrase over and over again. I want to dip my balls in it! I actually didn't even know until I picked up the book that you actually had a lot to do with Louie. It was largely because your balls were often either out or... I spent a fair amount of time at NYU and then in the years after in our 20s with the, I just called it for short, sack out. Yeah, sure, sack out. I remember sometimes we would be in a writing session and Uh, you would kind of be sack out and just kind of waiting until the rest of us, you know, one by one around the room started to notice what was going on. Another parlor trick we'd like to do is I would go down the street and then see how many people would notice that my sack was out. That's a great parlor trick. 
It's a great. It's not even. You don't even need a parlor for it. No, no. It's also maybe a way to get arrested. But I, well, look, we did a lot of things back then that, in retrospect, could have gotten us arrested, and in some cases, did. What did we get arrested ever? I feel like maybe you did for stealing uh, CDs at Tower Records. Oh yeah. Well, no, I did not get arrested. I just got warned that I would. That was a night that the state we all decided that we were going to have a big dinner. Was it at Mike Jan's place? And yeah. everyone had to steal something. No, there could be no food or anything else unless it was stolen. <laughs> it feels like it's true. I mean, but I used to go to the Woolworths and just like just for a sport would just like take a lamp and walk out the door because the Woolworths on it was a big store like a like a Walmart type place that, for those who are too young to know but it was on 8th it was on Broadway between like and 9th Street and you they had no they had no disincentive to shoplift like you walk in there and just take something and leave and the, the cashier was nowhere nearby it was just crazy well I distinctly remember I think I was with you when you and Carrie we went into a sports place and you put on like, you know, a $150 pair of running shoes and just laugh. Yeah. I tried them on with the, and the salesman and then I left. (laughs) I remember there were like 10 of us bringing stolen stuff to that dinner that night. I think Mike Jan made off with like an entire short loin of beef. There were like seven bottles of wine, fancy candles. I supplied the music from Tower Records. I'd stolen Talking Heads' Remain in Light and The Pogues' If I Should Fall from Grace with God. I don't think it even occurred to me how ironic those titles were in the moment. Anyway, around that same time, in the middle of our college career, I came out of the closet to the other members of the group Here's Joe LaTrulio, who now stars as Charles Boyle on Brooklyn Nine-Nine on Fox, recalling that. I remember on a drive, I think we were going to Brown University. I know Mike Chan was in the car, a couple other friends. That's when Kevin came out to us uh, in the car in such a matter-of-fact way that it hung there in such a nice way that one of us just was like, all right, yeah, okay. And uh, what was wonderful about that moment was that shortly thereafter, we were about to go on a mushroom trip. (laughs) So Kevin also had a wonderful uh, sense of timing and trust because I don't think you open up about things like that right before you go on hallucinogenics if you didn't uh, trust and love the people. I learned in high school that it's easiest to come out of the closet to people in cars (laughs) because there's something kind of calming and restraining and focused about being in that little space with someone. So in sophomore year, Michael Showalter left NYU to go to Brown University because, as he put it, he wanted to get, quote unquote, a real education. So one Friday morning, show calls us to say on the phone, hey, come on down. You guys can come crash on the floor in my dorm room for a weekend. So we get in a car, and I think, oh my God, we're all in a car. Here's my chance. 
Uh, there's about five of us. And I come out to everyone while we're on the road. And it goes fine. It's all pretty matter of fact, actually. But we were all super excited because I think Joe had procured a big bunch of psychedelic mushrooms. And we were all going to be doing them for the very first time. We were so impatient that we took them the moment we stopped the car in the parking lot at Brown University. When we got there, we were like, okay, down the hatch. Then we get to show Walter's dorm room, and he is exiting. He's got a big bag on his shoulder, and he's headed out the door. He's like, oh, fuck. I, I forgot you guys were visiting this weekend. I just made plans to go to Manhattan for a couple days. <laughs> oh, well, here's the keys to my room. And he's gone. So there we were, about five of us, just as the mushrooms are about to kick in. We're on this campus none of us had ever been on before. We don't know a single person there. We ventured out around campus, which suddenly became like Alice in Wonderland for us. We were just engulfed in giggling, just crying from giggling so hard for so long. At one point, Mike Jan snuck into a church and he saw that there was a priest in the confessional booth. You know, the little red light was on that showed there's a priest in there. So he goes in the little booth and we're all like, oh my God, what the fuck are you doing? We were worried sick. Like, what What on earth is he saying in there? He's in there for 15 minutes. And we're all like, he's going to get us arrested. But after 15 minutes, he finally comes out and we said, what the fuck? did you talk about with that priest? And he said, oddly enough, we just talked about how the Mets are doing this season. <laughs> now, Michael Showalter just directed one of the most celebrated indie movies of 2016. Hello, my name is Doris. The critics have loved it with Sally Field. But back then, he did get a real education at Brown, but he also kept returning to work with us up in New York whenever he could. Here's Michael Showalter talking about one of our very favorite sketches. I do remember that the new group, as we were then called, had a elaborate sketch, a show-stopping number called Medication. In the sketch, the main character forgets to take his medication while he's eating dinner and starts to experience hallucinations. And um, I remember two very specific things. This, this sketch left a huge impression on me, and Kevin plays a large role in this in two ways. One is that I believe that the sort of climactic moment in the sketch is that Kevin, in like a nude suit, is birthed out of a table. And then my other memory is that we needed a pig's head, an actual pig's head as a prop. And Kevin was the person who procured the pig's head. But I know that at some point it just kind of became like that was Kevin's thing. Like anytime we did the medication sketch... It was just a sort of assumed that Kevin would go get the pig's head. Like he would go to Chinatown and actually come back with an actual pig's head in a bag. 
and I was always very impressed by the resourcefulness of that because I don't think I given an entire week could have found a pig's head and it seemed like he was able to find one in a matter of hours there was a very good reason I was able to find a pig's head so suddenly see in our college days that sketch called medication was what we considered our masterpiece today it's the stuff of legend because we only ever did it live it was just too fucking weird to ever produce on our MTV series. Todd Hollebeck plays a guy who's at lunch with his friends. He realizes he forgot to take his medication that day. And slowly but surely, the lights, the sound, the set, the props, the costume, the whole stage completely transforms into Todd's hallucinations. A totally batshit, surrealist, crazy town. Someone's on a unicycle. Marino's pulling actual cow brains out of crevices in surfaces. People have faces on the backs of their heads. I am almost entirely nude and bald and slathered in Queen Helene pink hair gel. And I'm kind of shat out of a table which has become a vagina. And I bite my own umbilical cord in half. But at some point in the brainstorming process for the sketch, someone said, we ought to have an animal's head. And I said, ah, yeah, but it's got to be a real animal's head. And then something occurred to me. Because around my senior year in college, a beautiful Chinese guy I met at NYU had introduced me to this very, very old gay sex club named Jay's in the meatpacking district in the West Village. Now, Back then, the meatpacking district was literally that, a few blocks of actual slaughterhouses. But this place called Jay's was in the sub-basement, underneath the cellar of one of these meatpacking plants. So it was as smelly and dark and damp and dank as a space could be. But it was legendary because it had been Jay's since the 40s. Everyone knew. That guys like Tennessee Williams and Allen Ginsberg and Andy Warhol and Freddie Mercury had been in that space before us. Now, I was usually delightfully under the influence of several things at once in a blissful, besotted blur. So my memories of Jay's were often just kind of, you know, like random snapshots in a space that was usually only lit occasionally by, you know, Zippo lighters sparking cigarettes. I remember once I was giving a hand job to a Latino guy when I realized I was yanking him off balance. And then I looked down to see the reason was he only had one leg. Then, in the very next moment, I realized I was in the process of being blown, but I couldn't see anyone in front of me. I looked down again, and I saw it was a dwarf. So, that's what Jay's was like. Anyway, I would often only finish up at Jay's at about the time that the sun was coming up at dawn, you know? So, I'd be coming up out of this lightless underworld in the bowels of the city, and glimmering in the sunshine on the cobblestone streets was just this running blood. 
running through the cobblestones, the blood of the pig and cow carcasses being pulled on and off the trucks right there. So it was just as surreal as what was downstairs. So when we were brainstorming for medication and someone in the state said, oh, it would be great if someone had an animal's head on a bladder, I said, holy fuck, I know where to get that. I went right after rehearsal downtown to the place above Jay's, and I said to the guy behind the counter, can I get just the head of the biggest pig you've got? And he looked at me weird for a moment. And he said, yeah, what the fuck, 20 bucks, which was a ton of money to me then, and I knew I was going to have to ask for money from everyone in the group to cover it. But when I brought that pig's head back, people were like, holy shit, this is the most amazing part of the sketch of all. Uh, It was just horrifying, this thing. It had its tongue sticking out and these eyes that were all glazed over. I think Ben roller skated across the stage with the head on a big silver platter dressed as the Mad Hatter. And we were always making fun of yuppies, as we called them in those days. There was graffiti everywhere. Fuck the yuppies, the young Wall Street guys. So after any performance where we'd do the medication sketch, afterwards, I would go out in the street and find the most expensive-looking car on the block, a Porsche or a BMW, and I'd tuck the rotting pig's head under the back wheel of the car so that later... Mr. Yuppie would be backing up to get out of his parking space and suddenly hear a tremendous squishy thump and have to get out of his car and see what he just rolled over and get one hell of a surprise. I remember one night we were doing the state We were in New York City, and we were in our 20s, and Ken Marino was having a party. And uh, we were there, the state was there, I don't know who else was there. It wasn't a big party, but uh, we had had a particularly bad week, I feel like. Uh, Some stuff was happening, some drama, who knows, maybe we were arguing about whether or not a skit should end with a fart joke or not but for whatever reason we were all in kind of a shitty mood and we were at this party at Ken's and I just remember Kevin and I spontaneously slam dancing and moshing in the center of this party to probably Nirvana or some other flannel related grunge music and we did this for I want to say 14 hours. It was probably more like the length of one song or maybe two. And just danced around and sweat and landed on top of each other and cried and laughed and passed out, having drained everything from inside of us. And that stuck with me, that moment. Uh, It's a really good one to hang on to. You know, like when you're in one of those meditation classes and people say, close your eyes and go to a happy place. I go to an apartment on the Lower East Side with Kevin Allison, probably doing whippets, slam dancing to possibly Nirvana. And probably wine coolers were involved. 
That was Carrie Kenny Silver, probably best known now for her role as Deputy Trudy Weigel on Reno 911. Partly because Carrie was the only woman in the state and partly because she was just so incredibly talented. She played an unbelievable range of roles in state sketches. And I remember exactly why we were so out of sorts that day she's talking about. We were juniors about to be seniors. We were already talking about how we should try to make a professional career out of the group after graduation. But suddenly, Ben and Michael Black got an offer to tour the country dressed as Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles by some production company. And they said to the group, we decided we're doing this. So the group wasn't sure if or when they'd ever be back. We weren't sure if the group was already history. We were stunned. Ken was especially worried, and he had everyone over to his apartment on Avenue B. And we were just griping and growling. And when we finally got to the point where we were just spent, we pulled out the Jägermeister and beer and whippets. And someone turned on the stereo at top volume, playing Smells Like Teen Spirit. The song was incredibly new. I'd only heard little snippets of it coming from car windows or from behind dorm room doors up until that point from earlier that week. But the freshness of the song had so much power. Carrie and I started flailing around like the girl in The Exorcist, knocking liquids across the room, bashing our heads into one another. We were an explosion of limbs and screams. Someone snapped a picture, and it's just two blurs with screaming mouths. But we both knew where this energy was coming from. It was coming from a place of us expressing, we're going through a rough patch, but we're not done yet. Now here is Ben Grant at the Risk Live show in Los Angeles talking about his time as a turtle. I was in a comedy group called The New Group that became the state, and Todd Holubick came in and said, hey, I found a job. Uh, if anybody, there's, they're having auditions for this job, and it was to be a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. Uh, and we all went, the entire state, everybody, and some people flat out didn't fit in the costumes. Uh, Michael Jan didn't fit in the costume, Ken Marino didn't fit in the costume. I fit in the costume, and so we went and did like a, we tried to do the accent, and we all bought the comic books, and, and we were actors, so we were working on the experience of, you know, they were mutants, and they lived in a sewer. You know, like, like what, what does that mean? Uh, and, they, and, and they basically said, okay, if you want the job, it's yours. And they said, who can be in Detroit in four days? And I was a full-time student at NYU, and Michael Black and I talked ourselves into it on the subway ride down. The, the, the money, it was like 2,000 bucks a week. Like, it was crazy. Like, it, it, like it, by the end of it, I did it for nine months. And by the end of it, it paid off NYU and bought my apartment for two years in New York City. Uh, I was doing the math on the subway. Uh, <laughs> like, uh, so the, what the job was, uh, I don't know how old everybody is here. Does everybody remember how big the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were? Like, so this was after the first movie, but before the Vanilla Ice one. <laughs> They did a tour of the country, and at Pizza Hut, you could buy a cassette tape of their album. 
then it went in every single state for nine months. It did a, a tour. Uh, and what it was was it was a rock and roll concert, and they came out and they sang the, 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 the songs from the album, but then Shredder came and kidnapped April, and so they had to fight Shredder and then finish the show. Um, and so it was Broadway dancers in these outfits, and they realized... How do we do promotion? Because the dancers can't talk. Like the dancers are a city behind, they don't know how to do the voice. You know, it's a bunch of Broadway dancer dudes. They needed somebody to go one week advance and do promotion. So what, and me and Michael Black, and I was Michelangelo, and Michael Black was Raphael. And we, we went in a van, they gave us a Chevy Astro, and two big giant coffins in the back that had the costume and like the audio animatronic stuff and they would fax us our orders in each city. So we would get to Detroit and we would get a fax and it would tell us what we were doing and we did like six morning zoos that we would go on to the radio from like five in the morning till eight and kids would call. Like kids hadn't gone to school yet. Oh, what kind of pizza do you like? Free pizza, dude, you know, like. And, 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 and promote the show. And then we would go do the local weather, like whoever the funny weather guy was in Omaha. Like you would do the weather with him and they always did it at a pet store. Hey, wouldn't it be funny if we were at a pet store? Uh, and so they're at it. Well, we're at this pet store looking like, oh my gosh. And then Michelangelo would come out. Whoa, what's the weather, dude? Um, and then we would go to a school, often with McGruff the crime dog. <laughs> And talk about how drugs just aren't cool, man. Uh, like, uh, with Dare. So it was us and a cop and McGruff the Crime Dog and, like, <laughs> would talk. And the, the suits looked great. And sometimes one of us would be doing the voice off stage while the other one was pantomiming. And you were off stage doing the voice and, like, working the mouth and working the eyes and making it sound like it really looks cool. And the guy on stage would be just pantomiming. And it looked like the fucking movie. Like, so kids... Never, ever, ever, I swear to God, in nine months, nobody ever asked, are you in a costume? Not once. Like, like, like people just, the kids just like bought it. So it was being like a rock star for seven-year-olds. Uh, we went all over, we went to every single state. I'd never seen most of the country before. We went to Puerto Rico. In Puerto Rico, we were in a van with the local promoters. Uh, we did an appearance there for live television and it was like this live two-hour tv show in puerto rico that was this old guy in a tuxedo and this big like divine looking drag queen <laughs> named cake uh and they and 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 they said okay so what you what we're gonna do is a thing where we're just gonna film it and we'll do it live so it's gonna be on every tv in puerto rico live and you're trying to get past the bouncer explaining that you're michelangelo but but the bouncer's not gonna have you on the list and so you guys scuffle and like and it's all through a translator because i don't speak spanish i'm like well okay how long does this last and they're like 10 minutes like Okay. Uh, okay. Great. So, so I, so I'm Michelangelo, and I'm come up. Yeah, I'm on the thing, dude, and I'm on the list. I should be on the list. And the the regular character on this was the old, like, hundred year old security guy who's like always giving people a hard time. You know, you can't get in here, share. Like he's that guy. Uh, and, and, and so I said, okay, well, this is what I'll do. I'll come up and then I'll try to kung fu you because I'm a ninja turtle. And I'll kung fu you a couple of times and we'll kind of play kung fu and then I'll get in. And everybody was like, great, great. So I come up to this guy and I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm on the list. And the translator says, hey, Tortuga's ninja. Uh, and, 
And the old man is like, no, 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 that's, that, he's not on the list. So I start kung fuing him, and the first time I kick him, I hit him, and he goes down, boom! And hits his head on this linoleum floor, and it's bleeding. Like, like, and I'm like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. And I look over, and everybody behind the cameras is like, go, go, nine minutes, nine minutes. Uh, and so we like kind of Benny Hill chase each other around and everybody doesn't care and like this guy is like trying to get up and like bleeding on the floor and we're doing like crazy uh, he was okay um, it was a great 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 experience um, and it really changed my I mean it was just like this is just fucking fun um, What's the song? The songs were, for those of you who don't remember, one of them was, Yo, I'm the one they call Michelangelo. Let me kick my story. Just say so. Born like a pet. Just like the rest of them. I grew up wild to party with the best of them. Living loose. Living large. With my shell. Now I'm in charge. It's not that I'm crass. Not that I'm crude. Just that I'm a naturally tuberly dude. Like. Did it 200 times. So. I saw the whole country at 19. It was great. I remember they gave me a room in Vegas way off the strip, but I had a hot tub in the middle of the fucking room and it was an honor bar. So it was like the first beer I'd had since New York. And I like sat in my own like hot tub and like watched the Simpsons. And it was just like, I felt like fucking Tony Montagna. I was just like, yeah, this is, you know, this is fucking great. Uh, and part of the job was we always went to children's hospitals at every single city. Uh, so we would go through these children's hospitals and greet all these kids. And some of them were kids with broken arms. And a lot of them were really, really, really sick. And the first time I thought I was going to go in, I was terrified. I didn't know if I could handle it. But you go in and you're just the turtle. So it didn't really matter. And they didn't think of you as like an adult. And so they sort of lit up and were happy to see you come in. And you say, yeah, how you doing, dude? Yeah, you look good. Yeah, I'm bald too. You know, it was, it was like this thing. And it really like, and Pizza Hut had some kind of understanding with the Make-A-Wish program. So Make-A-Wish, which grants uh, wishes to kids who are dying with leukemia, like in every single city, there was at least one and sometimes four kids dying of leukemia who their wish list was to meet a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. So they would, uh, Pizza Hut would close for this kid and their friends. And I would go and they'd, I'd go in the back door like this sweaty, disgusting 19-year-old punk rock guy. And they, I'd, I would always change in the like walk-in freezer like change into the big thing and then sneak out the back door and they would have like the local radio station limo and I would get into that and it would go around the building and I would come out yo dude and like I would go inside and talk to these kids and at first I couldn't look at them and I was worried because the outfit looks good but the eyes don't move when you're in it like the eyes only moved if there was somebody operating it and the mouth looked pretty good it was it was fitted to my chin so it like went blah 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 like it wasn't just like a Mickey Mouse and like nothing so when I talked it moved but I was worried that they would think oh this is a kind of costume and then when I finally like the second or third one looked up in their eyes like I realized that they, they are scared to look at my face too like that they're just kind of looking at my chest and like you know like hey how are you and never once did I get asked is it hot in there you know, like, like never once did they ask me, like, is that stuffy? Like, can you see me? Like, they were just, I was fucking Michelangelo to all of these fucking kids. Um, they, one, one kid once said, 
you're really Michelangelo. And I, and I said, no, I'm Donatello. I changed masks to mess with you, dude. And it killed. <laughs> and like, and so my, my best job that I ever had was looking at little children who were dying and lying right to their face. Um, and and I, I'm like, it was 25 years ago and my whole life I've been trying to find something that good to do again and I, I haven't even come close. Thank you. our favorite memories from our days in the state come from the times we vacationed together. But out of that haze of the burnt out ends of smoky days, we usually remember things pretty differently. That's why I loved comparing these two bits of audio you're about to hear. Recently at a Risk Live show in New York, I told this little story about a trip that the state made to rural Pennsylvania. But then I got to hear Corey Stolz's telephone interview that he did with Ken Marino for when Corey was putting together the book, The Union of the State. And to my surprise, Ken's recollection of this particular night matches my recollection almost word for word. So here are both of us recounting the hop bottom scream. I forget why the screaming started. But, like, this is just a testament to, like, the commitment of our group or the competitive nature of our group, perhaps. This is when we were actually on TV. When we had a show on TV, we decided one weekend we really needed a break. And Ken Marino had, his parents had a lake, like a little cabin by a pond in Hop Bottom, Pennsylvania. <laughs> Which is like way, way in the middle of nowhere in the country. And we were like, we're going to all of us all pile into a van, go down there. We took this big trip. And when we finally got there, it was time for dinner. And we were like, no, we don't want to cook now after that long drive. Let's go out back in the van, get out there and find a good country dinner. Right? At some restaurant, we'll get a really, really good, you know, very, very, very unhealthy country dinner. So we had to go like three towns away to get something to eat. We went to this place, we sat down, and like every, anything that can go wrong went wrong as far as like waiting to get something to eat, how long it took, like what the food tasted like in the service. And, and it was like 11 of us, and it took two and a half hours to, <laughs> to have like a burger or something. So we were all super, super frustrated. It took us about 40 minutes to find the place, and then the country dinner was horrible. Oh my God, it took forever for the food to come, and then the food was horrible. So when we got back in the van, one of the members of the group, I think it was Tom, just once we were all closed, locked back in the van to go back to the campsite, just started going, When we finally paid the check and got into the van, one of us, as I was pulling out of the parking lot, like just started screaming in frustration about how crazy that was. And then everybody started screaming. And then nobody stopped screaming. We were all just like, it was very cathartic, actually. We all just started screaming. And everyone else just chimed in, right? <laughs> everyone else just joined in a group. Ah! 
And it went on for 40 minutes. And it had to be no less than 40 minutes to get back to the house. Maybe an hour. I, I, I mean, honestly, it was like, it was, it was crazy long, and I feel like I timed it. Everybody just was screaming at the top of their lungs and laughing and screaming and laughing and screaming, but without pause. We all just like when someone ran out of breath, they took a breath, and it, so it was just one continuous group wail. And at the end, we were like, God damn, that felt really spiritual. That was like yogic yelling. And it was very much like a great, wonderful, like, I don't know, moment of bonding between us. Gosh, we're really good at screaming for 40 minutes straight. And it was one of the most memorable, ridiculous, stupid, uh, committed things I think we've ever done as a group. <laughs> That was Ken Marino. Lately, you can catch him on Adult Swim on Children's Hospital. Now, once the state had been on MTV for over a year, we still weren't sure how many people were actually watching the show. We always felt like it should be a lot more, which is the exact same way I felt about this podcast for seven years. We don't have the resources to do marketing, but risk I think deserves to be heard by 20 times as many people as are currently aware that it exists. Anyway, about two thirds of the way through our time at MTV, the state got a whole month off an amazing opportunity to get out of New York city. Now on an episode of risk called different, which was released in 2010, I tell the story of how I went off on a solo vacation and dove into the rapids of the Colorado River and very, very nearly drowned. I spent about 10 minutes very, very convinced that my life was ending. That is an epic tale. Meanwhile, at that same time, Michael Black got into a near-death experience of his own, a terrifying car accident at 70 miles per hour in Texas with Joe LaTrulio, Michael Showalter, and Ken Marino in a van. But Michael Jan shared this much less scary story over the phone with Corey Stoltz about what he and Ben Grant and Todd Hollebeck were up to that summer when they visited the great city of New Orleans. there you know we got to uh, new orleans parked the car and walk, walk around the french quarter it's like god there's like so many bars and so many places to go and like, we have no idea where it is that we should be going so we saw this group of it was like two or three girls and we're like they look cool let's just follow them wherever they go so we just sort of like fell in sort of like not too casual like it wasn't like we were stalking them we were just hoping that they were going someplace cool and they would just lead us like inadvertently to someplace cool so i guess we didn't do a very good job of following them because eventually they turned around and we're like what are you doing We're, you know, we're just looking for someplace cool to go. We don't really know it here. And they're like, oh, well, we just moved down here from the East Village. So 
holy shit, we have a TV show, right? Right. We can do cool things. Let's <laughs> <I> utilize this. <laughs> so we went out to Lollapalooza in the morning, and now not really thinking through entirely the idea of like, okay, now we're now we have just walked into our audience. Right. Like the people of Lollapalooza are literally that is it. Like that's who watches the state. Like there is nobody else watches the show, but this entire group of people. Right. And then like wherever we went, it was just like a. <gasps> Mike Jan has produced and directed many, many films and TV shows over the years. Now we're going to share a bit of a Michael Ian Black story. If you don't know, the Risk podcast might not exist if it weren't for the encouragement of Michael Black. There's an episode of Risk called Try from 2014 where I tell the origin story of the podcast and Michael plays a key role in that story. But during the first few weeks of Risk's existence in August of 2009, Michael performed at our live show, which was then at this little punk rock dive bar called Arlene's Grocery in the Lower East Side. He told a story about going skydiving with Ben Grant and Tom Lennon. It's another story that hits on the competitive nature of the group. The full version is in the Risk episode called Good Grief, but I'm going to walk us through the highlights of it here. Here's Michael Ian Black at the Risk Live show in New York in 2009. So when Tom and Ben said, yeah, we should go Scott, I said, yeah. Mostly, I shouldn't even say mostly, entirely because I didn't want them to think I was a pussy. Because when there's a dynamic where there's three people and two of them aren't pussies, you don't want to be the guy who is a pussy. So I said, yeah. So Mike agreed to go skydiving with Ben and Tom, then came home to his wife Martha that night, and she was not having it, not into the idea that he should go skydiving the next day. I'm in the position of explaining to like somebody who suddenly wakes up and doesn't believe in Santa anymore why Santa exists. The logic, when you think about it for even a second, doesn't make any sense, but I'm in the position of having to defend it because she knows 
I don't want to go skydiving. She knows me well enough to know this, but I can't explain to her the true reason, which is just that I don't want to be a pussy. So I dig in my heels and I'm saying, no, I want to live life on the edge. I want to experience the adrenaline rush. I'm like, I'm like the world's worst Mountain Dew commercial. So we fight about it. And you know, and at the end of the night, we go to bed, and the only agreement that we come to is that I'm a terrible person <laughs> who will die the following day <laughs> just to spite her. <laughs> the next day, all three guys go to the skydiving place. They take a long class from their jump master, Rick, who spends most of this class warning them they may very well die. And then the class is done, and it's time to get ready. So... We go outside, and this is after hours, and where it's hot, it's so hot, and I'm anxious, and Ben and Tom are incredibly confident, and they're being dicks about it. <laughs> Just in their enthusiasm, I'm getting angry at them, because they seem to have no worries at all. You know, it's a lot of, like, grinning, and, like, high fives, and, like, this is gonna be awesome. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Finally, during a horrifying ride in an ancient, rickety, tiny plane, Mike does the deed. He jumps out of the plane and into the sky and opens his parachute. And I, you know, this incredible sense of relief comes over me and elation. And the jump masters are kind of tumbling away towards the earth. Because, you know, they can, they can activate their parachutes lower because they're... Jump masters. <laughs> and I'm floating towards the ground, and I feel like I've done something here. I've survived this. I'm a hero. Ben and Tom are going to think I'm awesome. I'm not a pussy. And just as I'm having those thoughts, I throw up all over myself. An explosion of pink and yellow vomit all over my nylon parachute suit. I don't know what I had eaten that day. Apparently it contained equal parts marinara sauce and pineapple. And I'm thinking, all my good deeds have just come undone. Everything that I just accomplished or thought I had accomplished was just washed away in a sea of vomit. And now I have 20 minutes of floating down to the earth to contemplate what I'm going to say, how I'm going to be, how I'm going to explain this to Rick. <laughs> and as I get down to the ground, I decide on a course of action, and I think it's the most honest course of action, which is to wear my puke like a badge of fucking honor. <laughs> there is no other circumstance 
that I could be more proud of throwing up on myself than having jumped by myself out of an airplane at 13,000 feet. So I get on the ground, and Rick's like, how was it, how was it? And he could smell me, you know, how was it, how long? And I say, and Ben and Tom, or ben, Tom's there, I think Ben is about to land. And I said, I fucking threw up all over myself. <laughs> Carrie Kenny's old band Cake Like with Nina Hellman and Jody Seifert. They formed around the same time the state was on MTV, and little did they know, but they were a big inspiration to someone who became a great friend of the state's. Our next story comes from none other than Janine Garofalo, one of the group's first famous friends. Janine told this one at a recent Risk Live show at the Bell House in Brooklyn. Now, in the time that Janine's referring to, around 94, 95, she had already been on the Ben Stiller show, the Larry Sanders show, the movie Reality Bites. So in our minds, Janine was on a much higher rung of the ladder of success than we were at that point. That's why it's especially interesting to hear her perspective in this story. Here's Janine at the Risk Live show this summer in Brooklyn. What? Uh, hello. Hello. This is, this is, what I am going to discuss, I am somewhat reticent to discuss because some of the elements of the story, uh, actually, let me just do it. Let me just, okay. I have, I have discussed state stories before when asked one I've told many times about the Michael Ian Black, who, as he remembers it, I invited him to go to a party with me. As I remember it, that's what I knew of him, but met him at this party. Suffice it to say, he, my best friend from college, and another person went back to my hotel room, all slept in the same bed platonically. He with a full suit and hard shoes on through the whole night. Uh, in the morning... The uh, fourth person popped up, said, oh my God, I'm going to be late for work. And then we all said to each other, who was that? We, it, that was, no, no one to this day knows who that person was. But the, that was a story off told. And then I, when I was talking to Kevin and JC, getting ready for the show, there's a story I have always had inside me that I've never wanted to tell because it's somewhat embarrassing for me. It involves Carrie Kenny. And this goes back to the early 90s. Now, I had seen the state, and we also were on the last John Stewart show together. And I was a big fan of theirs, but Carrie Kenny caught my eye for several reasons. I unfortunately had a very bad habit years ago, even though I'm older than her, but when I was younger, because it was years ago, now I'm in AARP. You know the story. Uh, you know about the backpack. 
It's a, it's a really good backpack. I've discussed this on the stage before. There's a pillbox inside that says Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. But I, I digress. This is a great backpack. It's a great backpack. I'm also getting a weekend duffel. But, ARP. But this is prior to even getting the materials for ARP. This is the early 90s. And Kara Kenny was not only a funny person, but she was in a band called Cake Like that uh, I was a fan of. But it was the concept of Carrie Kenny, much like back then, uh, Kim Deal and Juliana Hatfield. I had this in my mind of, God, a life. What is their life like? They're so interesting. They're so much better than me. They, they, they're creative. And here's what is embarrassing to me, naturally thin. Now, let me unpack that. That, that, that is something that if you can't relate to it, it is merely boring to hear about. But I want to tell you something. This... Some of you may understand what I'm talking about. There is something when you meet people that seem effortlessly cool and attractive and very thin, not just regular, but very, very thin and have clearly been so their whole lives and I think are somewhat cavalier about it, but that's another story. Uh, It fascinates me. It fascinates me. And, And again... I hate this kind of talk. Please understand that I hate this kind of talk, but I do need to lay it as foundational groundwork for what I'm talking about. Now, I uh, uh, have been battling my way, basically from the evacuation of Saigon, (laughs) honestly, until the illegal invasion of Iraq. I could say couches, yo-yo my weight like an accordion. I'm five foot one, but it could be, we're going back to 73 Watergate hearings uh, where it, it's really kicked in. And at five foot one, I could be anywhere from, from 160 pounds to sl- sl- lower than that. And it was just uh, an accordion. Now, the only time I got it under control somewhat was the invasion of Iraq. That's the only upside I can find to invasion of Iraq is I quit drinking and got my hands on some very good diet pills. Now, those have stopped working, but I've found other ways around that. Now, unfortunately, that's changed again as I'm in perimenopause. I hate this kind of talk. I promise you, I hate this kind of talk. Uh, and I've had to take thyroid. I'm getting thicker again now, despite... These are the spanks. Top to bottom. Top to bottom. With feet. Now, I understand this is boring and shallow, but there's something about if you are a person that is always seem like a spectator in life to others that seem to have it all figured out, and Carrie Kenny was one of those people to me. When I first saw her on the John Stewart show, she was as thin as one can be with your skeletal frame with skin, skin over it, and she had on overalls and a Russian hat, like a fur Russian hat. I was like, oh! And also had the wherewithal to go to the Tisch School of the Arts. The Tisch School. Whereas I was a straight C student. That's a gentleman C. I was a straight C student all the way through. A middle of the rotor in every aspect of my life from childhood. Just a middle of the rotor. A quitter. A quitter. Just a quitter. I did try and learn bass because I wanted to be like Kim Deal and Kelly Deal. But it hurt my fingers and I was like, nope. Uh, uh, do you know what I mean? But these are people that stuck with it 
could wear a Russian fur hat and do the type of music that, if you were to listen to Cake like that one, I'm still a fan of both Delicious and Bruiser Queen, but it is very much of its time and, uh, and of, it, of its age. Having said that, give it a listen. Give it a listen if you haven't already. Here's the embarrassing part. And this is back before cell phones and stuff. This is landline stuff. I used to call her and hang up. I'm not, I'm not joking. I used to call Carrie Kenny and hang up. I wanted to be around her. I wanted to be near her. This is, she doesn't know this. I never have discussed this before. I'm not making it up for the sake of, you're looking at me with skepticism. And uh, it is of no benefit to any of us for me to lie, you know, to lie to you. And then one time she picked up and I didn't hang up. And it's a landline. So she answered and I said, hi, it's Janine Garofalo. I'm on a show called The Ben Stiller Show. And, uh, and I said something that I do not even believe and I'm ashamed of. I said, I know that you're the only girl in your troop and it can be a real boys club. I hate phrases like that. I don't think that about it. Just, I, I didn't think that about the best. Oh, and I said something that I don't say. It, 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 I hate as much as like today when people say bucket list or bonus room. It's not a bonus room. It's not a bonus room, real estate agents. It's not, it's a room. It's, it's a room in the home. Was always meant to be in the home. I don't like that kind of talk. But, and I said to her, so like, so if you ever want to talk, and, I, and the whole time I'm saying that, what I've just done is made sure she doesn't want to talk. You know what I mean? Like, who, you, you don't know me, and I'm going to say something I don't even believe to try and make contact with you in your orbit to be around you. But I did the same thing with uh, Amy Sedaris and Amy Poehler when I first met them, and Reverend Jen, who is the real deal from Lower East Side, Reverend Jen Miller, who, that, who lit avant-garde, Lower East Side, Artist, artist, Reverend Jen. And whenever I was around those people, and to this day, I was embarrassed. Uh, because at that time, my career, I'd got, I don't know what the fluke, it was a fluke. I, I don't know what happened. Somehow in the early 90s, and I knew it was a fluke. Luckily, I was fiscally prudent. I was quite right. It ended, it ended, it ended. That's why frequently when I run into people, they say, why did you quit acting and doing stand-up? I didn't, but uh, you, you t- I have no social media platforms. I have no social media platforms. That's but at the time in the early 90s, I, I had gotten, for some reason, lucky. I don't know why. And I was uh, simultaneously on the Ben Stiller show and the Larry Sanders show. Now, Carrie Kenny and... Amy Poehler and Amy Sedaris and Reverend Jen, far more talented than me. They still are. And, and believe me, Amy Poehler, they're doing fine. Uh, they're doing fine. I think things are going to work out for Amy Poehler. I think things are going to work out. But, uh, so they have far... But as you know, uh, entertainment, much like life in general, is not a meritocracy. It isn't. The, the best person for the job doesn't always get the job, and I very much realized that they were much better than me and uh, probably should have been cast in things that I was cast in. And so I was always deeply ashamed to be around them. Yet, I can't tell you how thin Amy Poehler and Amy Sedaris... <laughs> I know this is shallow and horrible. I know, but listen to me. I'm bending at the waist. This is how serious I am about this. If you don't understand what I'm talking about... I'm talking about people that get a lot done in a day. Didn't seem to need to sleep. I love sleeping. I still do to this day. I just want to sleep. I just want to sleep. And they also, when I did get to hang around with them, when we would dine together, not Carrie, but Amy and Amy 
Uh, not because not Carrie, but I, I never did share a meal with Carrie Kenny. More's the pity. Maybe one day. But with Amy Sedaris and Amy Poehler and Reverend Jen, uh, uh, as the years have gone by, I have shared a meal. Do you know that they don't finish their stuff on their plate? I, I find that... I, 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 I really am not joking. I really am not trying to be... obtuse about this. It, it, it's fascinating. They actually pick at it. Could take it or leave it. Could take it or leave it. Now, I also uh, had no sense of moderation with alcohol. And I can remember Amy and Amy, the two Amys, thinking, you finished that whole bottle of wine? What, what is the, It's four glasses. It's, it's four glasses. I still feel like I was on the right side of history on that one. I, even, though, even though I've had... It's a... But they just, maybe just leave it, you know, no, no, just like with the food, I don't, I still don't get it. How, you didn't finish it, you pushed it around your plate, you talked, you know, you stopped and we, you're conversing. Um, I don't understand it, but it is something compelling to me about people. But not just that, going back to Carrie Kenny, they, here's a, a uh, CD cover of Delicious from Cake Like. Now, get a load of the photo. All three of them. Nina Hellman and... Uh, is it Jessica Seifert? I always get that wrong. I'm sorry. Look at the way they're dressed. Just look at them in 1994. Just looking great. She's wearing... Actually, what I am wearing now, these are thermal underwear with bottoms cut off, but that didn't start until American Apparel kicked in. She's doing it in 94. There's Kara Kenny with the dyed blonde hair with the dark roots, kind of a shag, kind of a mullet. Do you see what I mean? Do you see what, albums, the albums. They have albums and they do comedy. And then the last thing I'll say is, and this is terribly embarrassing, I would go see Cake Like by myself because uh, actually I prefer to do things by myself because other people, uh, I'm comfortable in my own company, but I'm also terribly socially awkward, but I, one time they were, I happened to be in Los Angeles, they were playing, I believe, at the Roxy or the Whiskey Cake. Like, there was a line. I was standing on line, and as I always do, I bring a book. Now, I don't say that to be a douche, pardon my French, that really is French, I feel comfortable saying that. But I, I always have a paperback on me, and you should too, because you never know when nothing's going to happen. So, but, but I had a, I had one of my... Uh, the right, it has to be the right heft paper, but it has to be maybe a penguin classic. And also it makes people, people make assumptions. Oh, a penguin classic. <laughs> but, uh, so I'm standing online outside the, either the Whiskey or the Roxy reading probably easily a size 14, which means something. And I'm by myself and then Carrie's walking for load in because it's very early and she goes, what are you doing here alone? And uh, she, was, she didn't mean it mean. And I was like, I, I've just come to see you. See, now I know I've been calling her and hanging up. She doesn't know that. But it, the one phone call with the fake boys club nonsense happened. So I don't know how she feels about me. My only assumption, like with anyone, I assume people do not like me. That's my go-to thing. Um, I just feel people are polite enough to indulge me. Um, <laughs> Not this gentleman. He's uh, ambivalent at best, so I can only fo- I can only focus on it. He's actually he's, he's actually leaning. He's weary with this, um, but that's how I feel comfortable. Actually, it makes me comfortable. But 
I, to this day, whenever I'm around Reverend Jen or Amy Sedaris or Amy Poehler or Carrie Kenny, feel like a schmuck. Just like a schmuck. Just, no, no, no. I'm not saying feel sorry for me. I'm just being honest for the purposes of this podcast, which I don't have one of. Apparently, it's like jury duty. You don't have a podcast. You don't have a podcast? You don't have a podcast? But I think that's been more than eight minutes. I probably should go. Um, no, no, no. I wasn't, I wasn't milking it, although I... Thank you. But I don't know what to say in summation. In summation... I know many of you don't remember, but 1973, Match Game 73 was preempted because of the Watergate hearings. It was a real bummer. Maybe you have a vague recollection of it. It was a really a drag. I don't know if you remember Match Game. Dumb Dora was so dumb. Instead of using your key, she used her blank. Gene Rayburn, Brett Summers, Richard Dawson, nobody. They used to smoke. They used to smoke on the game show and they were clearly very drunk by the end of it. Lucille Ball, woo, drunk. Anyway, you guys have been great and I, and I wish that had been more compelling. Um, oh, here's why, oh, wait. This has to do with Vietnam and this has nothing to do with Carrie Kenny, but I wrote it down because I remembered this and I didn't remember it until I was going over what I was gonna say. Now, after the uh, fall of Saigon, uh, honestly, seriously, uh, there was a movement in the States to, to adopt Vietnamese orphans. Now, uh, have a bit of a Google or ask your parents or grandparents. I can remember begging my mom and dad, please, please, can we get a Vietnamese orphan? You won't let me have a dog. I remember doing that. The shame. Now, I wanted it for the right reasons because I wanted to have another sibling because I had nothing, I have, there's five kids in my family, I have nothing in common with any of them and I thought, well maybe there'll be something I can really, we'll really get each other, me and this Vietnamese orphan who's been traumatized beyond belief by my countrymen, I'm sure. But I can remember my mom going, no, no, you don't understand what you're asking. Please, come on, Becca Hoffman's family's getting one. And they did. And they did. But anyway, you guys have been very, very nice. Thank you. Good night. was Janine Garofalo and this is of course ACDC behind me now when we were in college we started every show with this song now our last little bit here comes from the guy who started the state it was Todd Hollebeck who put that audition together in 1989 it was Todd who founded the group now remember some of these clips are from a recording that was made for my birthday this year so this story is actually not so much about the state as it is about me. But I thought it would be an especially fun one to go out on. Here is Todd Hollebeck.
If you have the good fortune to become acquainted with Kevin Allison, you will over time become familiar with his decision-making process, how he moves about his day-to-day life, making choice A over choice B over choice C. And you may find yourself in a state of confusion and awe as to the sheer absence of logic and reason behind all of his decisions. During Kevin's younger years, perhaps he's seven or eight years old, he's still living in Cincinnati and long before he moves to New York City, he goes to the dentist for a cavity. And instead of Novocaine, the dentist chooses to use nitrous oxide, laughing gas. The assistant puts Kevin in the chair, fits the mask over his face, opens the valve to the laughing gas, leaves the room, and then promptly forgets about Kevin. For 45 minutes, Kevin experiences not sitting in a dentist's chair waiting for the doctor in Cincinnati, but he is in a dentist chair traveling at the speed of light throughout the universe. He is simultaneously everywhere and nowhere. He becomes cosmic radiation, exploring the cosmos and all of its infinite greatness in a way that he compares to the final moments of 2001 Space Odyssey. So if you find yourself experiencing uh, a sense of confusion and wonderment as to how he gets from A to B, how he moves throughout his day-to-day life. I'll just point out that Kevin Allison is a complete motherfucker and should not be trusted. That about brings us to the end of this week's episode, folks. This is Mike Doty behind me now, another friend and someone the group has long admired from back in the day. Todd is absolutely right that that is a remarkably accurate recounting of that anecdote. I'll never forget how I was soaring through the cosmos when suddenly before my eyes, the vision of a dental assistant started to form before me. And she pointed at the gas mask and said, Oh my God, is that thing still on? (laughs) She had accidentally shown me what Dylan called the awful truth of how sweet life can be. Todd Holabeck is an artist and a professor living in Seoul, South Korea, and teaching young people about interactive media. 
And that is about all for this week's episode. Thanks so much to all of the members of the state for letting us use these clips. Don't forget to look for the book, The Union of the State by Corey Stoltz on Amazon. And check out the old series on Hulu, Amazon Prime, iTunes, or MTV Classic. Here is where Risk Live is happening next. On August 24th, we are back at the Bell House in Brooklyn, On September 17th, we're back in Los Angeles at the bootleg. On September 17th, we are also in Salt Lake City, Utah. I'll be there at the Salt Lake Show. And the theme that night is outrageous. So pitch us, folks out there in Salt Lake. We are still taking pitches. If you go to the submissions page at risk-show.com. Same goes for folks on September 22nd when we'll be in Nashville, Tennessee. The theme that night is humiliating. We're still taking pitches for the Nashville show at, you know, wristshow.com slash submissions. On September 30th, we're in Richmond, Virginia. Still taking pitches for that as well. The theme is, is juicy. On November 11th, we're in New Orleans. The theme is legends. We're taking pitches for that. On November 12th, we're in Baltimore. The theme is Wounded. We're taking pitches for that. As always, you can also find us on Twitter and Facebook at Risk Show. On Twitter, I'm also at the Kevin Allison. And if you would like to learn how to tell stories, we teach this stuff also at thestorystudio.org. We do one-on-one training over Skype. We do corporate training for staffs. All kinds of training available, video courses that you can download and do in your own time at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Jake, you could probably get a job selling tacos to customers on a voluntary basis. Listen, I just died inside and I don't really feel like talking. So is he going to start delivering our mail now? I don't know, sweetheart. But I do know this. That was the longest conversation I've ever had. Goodbye, mailbox. Bye-bye.